My ordinary plan was to continue our consecutive series on the Gospel of Mark this Lord's Day. However, as I've been wrestling with the text and the passage that follows during the week, uh, it just came about that I need a little bit more time to organize my thoughts about that. We are in the thick of the parables of Mark there and these parables of the kingdom. And uh, so, Lord willing, next Lord's Day we will... Uh, pick up in Mark chapter 4, but today I thought it would be helpful for us if we go to Exodus 14, an Old Testament text, a very important, foundational Old Testament text. I think it's important that the Church of Jesus Christ have a healthy diet from both Old and New Testaments. I guess one way we could put that is if the New Testament is the meat of the word, then the Old Testament is the potatoes, the vegetables. we got to eat our meat and our vegetables here. Or in the words of one Puritan, God speaks with two lips, the Old and New Testaments. And so let's look at Exodus chapter 14, and let's read the first 18 verses. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, opposite Baal-Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord, Yahweh. And they did so. Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people, and they said, Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea beside Pi-Hahiroth before Baal-Zephon. Zephon, by the way, means north. Uh, that means lord of the north, or uh, north could also be translated high place or lofty place, lord of the high place. This, this was some great mountain. Verse 10, and when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in this wilderness. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see 
the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forth. But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. Yeah, as if it were that simple, huh? <laughs> and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, Yahweh, when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Well, this is the gospel according to the Old Testament. That's what it is. It's pure gospel truth. This is the gospel in a picture in a story draped in historical occurrence. Now, you probably heard of that old maxim that says that God helps those who help themselves. Now, there might be some small element of truth to that saying when it comes to the sphere of our earthly vocations. Proverbs 10:4 says, The hand of the diligent makes rich, and the hand of the slack brings poverty. So yeah, an element of truth. But when it comes to salvation, that maxim is just plain wrong. It's heretical. God saves those. God helps those who come to the utter end of themselves. So if you believe that in salvation, God helps those who help themselves, you'll end up in the same condition as apostate Israel, of whom Paul said, that they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, that is, this great redemptive historical accomplishment of God whereby he has satisfied justice through the cross-bearing and atoning death of his son Jesus Christ in order to establish righteousness for us that we receive as a free gift of grace. Being ignorant of God's righteousness, that is the righteousness of God, going about to establish their own righteousness, they had not submitted to the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is entirely of his working. It's entirely of his accomplishment. It's entirely of his doing. And we have not to do except to be still and see the salvation of the Lord, to receive it, to receive it. And so what I would like to do on this occasion is replace this maxim, God helps those who help themselves, with the truth of God. Because even if we don't say it, we're definitely prone to think it at times. How easy it is to presume that God's help depends on our effort, our abilities, our resources, our strivings, our doings. Well, instead of predicating God's help on human exertion, our text teaches us to ascribe salvation and deliverance to the wonderful working of God. 
And so I want to home in on verses 13 to 14 in particular. And my title for this sermon is God's Glorious Display of a Sovereign Salvation. Our text is located within the history of Israel's exodus from Egypt. The event of the exodus is a paradigm of salvation. There are several core truths, several core works of God in the Old Testament that constitute something of a paradigm, of a pattern for God's salvation, that once they are initially revealed, are then cycled and recapitulated again and again throughout the history of the Old Testament. There are patterns of God's work of salvation. One of those, the first, of course, is God's promises and covenant with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You'll see that in the subsequent history of Israel, when Israel lapses into sin and violates the law and is guilty of provoking the curse of the law upon themselves, that the intercessors of the nation, namely the prophets in particular, will often appeal to the promise made to Abraham. And they'll confess, we know, we have, we, have, we have sinned against you, we have violated your covenant, you are just in your doings, we deserve all the calamity that is coming upon us, but God, you promised to Abraham. And so that promise was made by grace and reveals to us God's goodwill of salvation toward his people, giving us a preemptive revelation of the covenant of grace that was ratified with the blood of our dear Savior. The next event, of course, is when God appears to Moses and reveals his glory to him. God descends in the cloud, the glory cloud, his glory passes before Moses, and he makes this great declaration revealing his character. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and mercy and truth, who keeps mercy, who keeps covenant, but he says, but by no means clearing the guilty. So God is just and gracious at the same time. Now, that text in Exodus 34, God's declaration, is in fact the most quoted and alluded to text in the Old Testament in the rest of the Old Testament. Tons and tons of echoes and allusions and citations and interactions with that text. So it's, it really establishes a paradigm. And then the third, of course, is the Exodus from Egypt. The Exodus from Egypt. This is what salvation's like. This is how God works in salvation. He redeems people by grace, people who were an enslaved and helpless people. He shows up on the scene. He lays bare his holy arm. He redeems them by his grace. We see that even in the preface to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So therefore you shall have no other gods before me. But before he gives them his law, he declares his gracious work of redemption. I am the Lord God who worked redemption for 
you. Everything is framed within the pattern of the gracious Exodus redemption. Future salvation in Christ is portrayed by the prophets as a second Exodus, as we saw in our reading of Isaiah 11 this morning. But to be sure, not every Israelite who was physically redeemed from Egypt and led through the Red Sea experienced eternal salvation. Most of them did not. Many of them did not believe. Hebrews 4 says they perished as a result. And so we shouldn't make the mistake of equating temporal salvation from the tyranny of Egypt with eternal salvation from the tyranny of sin and Satan. But though there is not an exact equivalence, there certainly is correspondence. This is owing to what we call biblical typology. And what it means in this case is that historical events surrounding the Exodus story are divinely designed acts. They are purposefully ordained by God, every detail of them. They were orchestrated in such a way so as to prefigure and foreshadow and illustrate beforehand the climactic realities of salvation that would be fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And that's what typology does. That's what all biblical typology does. It points to Christ. He fulfills all the types, all the shadows, all the prophecies. He is the sum and substance of all the law and the prophets. John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. Yet these are they which testify of me, he said. Everything that's written in the Old Testament is centered around Christ and it also leads to Christ. And it was written by the inspiration of the Spirit of Christ, says the Apostle Peter, with the intention of pointing us to him. And so unless we read Exodus chapter 14 with Christ in view, then we're not reading it right. So what we are reading here is not just an ancient book about an ancient people, not just an ancient story, but a living book that speaks to us just as much, well actually more, than it did to that first generation of Israelites. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the end, ends of the ages have come. So these Old Testament texts deal not merely with their salvation, but even and especially with our salvation. And what's the principle that it so clearly highlights here? Well, the text teaches us that salvation is the distinctive and definitive work of God alone, and that he sovereignly accomplishes it for the display of his own glory. And so as we approach our text, with this in mind, our outline will be as follows. First of all, there is utter impossibility. Second, divine spectacularity. And I don't even know if that's a word, but if it's not, I just invented it. Third, definitive finality. So in the first place, note that we have utter impossibility. The children of Israel were in an impossible predicament. Impossible because 
humanly speaking, there was no way they could escape the threat of imminent extermination. This is clear from the preceding context or in the beginning of the chapter. Look at verses 1 to 3. It says, to repeat it, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they turn and camp before Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdol and the sea opposite Baal-Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea. That was a trap. That was a dead end. There was nowhere else to go. They didn't just happen to stumble upon that spot. God commanded them to camp in that spot. For Pharaoh will say to the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. So Israel is described by bewildered or entangled by the land. We could translate that. Closed in in the wilderness. Scholars fiercely debate the precise scene of this event. There are a couple of good options. According to the traditional route of the Exodus, they were at a dead end, hemmed in by what is known as, in modern times as Mount Musa on one side and the impassable body of water on the south and the east. Either way, with the alternative route, they were still hemmed in. There would have been mountains that were hemming them in that the about two million Israelites, if we go by the numbers of the census of the book of Exodus, the numbers that are revealed to us there that count the men, multiply that according to what would have been the population of women and children that correspond to those men, they would have numbered about two million. Now that's quite a lot. And it's quite a lot of ladies and beasts and little ones who are straggling behind all the way as they are journeying through the wilderness. They cannot outrun Pharaoh. But even if they could outrun Pharaoh and his armies, here they were hemmed in. They had nowhere to go. They couldn't scale the mountain. They couldn't cross and tread upon the sea. They had nowhere to go. And so as Israel traveled eastward toward Canaan, having been led out of Egypt, the Lord had them take a detour. They didn't go straight to the promised land. They took a detour that resulted in becoming entrapped by this geographical land map. It's, all, it's a, almost as if God created that precise location with the <laughs> Exodus events in view. And so they had nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. The mightiest army in the world was fast approaching enraged, furious. Verses 6 to 7 say, So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. This is a large army, especially for the ancient world. A much smaller force could have probably, humanly speaking, easily annihilated this band of a couple million Hebrew slaves that are fleeing with just a few things and the clothes on their back. And so Israel's furious army, they're fast approaching. The intention was to slaughter. Now, chariots, to put this in perspective, chariots in ancient times were the tanks. Okay, so 
In modern warfare, when you think of a tank, if you want to put that in terms of ancient warfare, think of the chariot. These were the chariots that were coming after Israel. This was a well-trained army. These were battle-hardened soldiers. Egypt's army had the latest in military technology and advancements. Yes, to us, it, it, we would consider it to be quite primitive, but in comparison to the military weaponry that Israel would have had, uh, Egypt far surpassed them. And so what's Israel do? They panic. Look at verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near... And the children of Israel lifted up their eyes. Well, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. That's the understatement of the century there. Very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. They're not crying out to God in sincere prayer, saying, Lord, deliver us. They're crying out in terror and panic and anxiety and fear. This was not the cry of faith. This was the cry of fear. And it was not an ordinary cry. This was no cool-minded petition that characterizes many a church's comfortable prayer meeting. It was a scream of desperation, an outburst of emotional exuberance. This was life or death, and they thought it was death. And so the children of Israel, they despaired. They despaired. And they said to Moses, because there are no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Really? It was Moses that did that? I recall Moses saying, Lord, as we heard yesterday in our fellowship breakfast, Lord, I don't want to do this. Lord, send somebody else. This was the Lord's doing. And yet, they blame Moses as if it were a bad thing. There is an abiding, prevailing unbelief in the hearts of the Israelites. Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in this wilderness. No faith. Only fear. And so as far as they were concerned, they were as good as dead. There was no way to possibly survive this. And this is a tremendous lesson for us, brethren. For just as Pharaoh was too mighty for Israel, our ancient adversary, the devil, is much too mighty for us. Pharaoh is a picture of the enemy of the people of God. The enemies of the people of God. The archenemy, of course, is none other than Satan. He's a formidable foe indeed. Luther wrote in his famous hymn, of course, in the steeped in the battle of the Reformation, when he felt Satan breathing down his neck, he would lock himself into a room and argue with the devil uh, out loud for hours on end. And then he wrote this famous hymn which says, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. And on earth, Pharaoh had no equal either. But our problem is not only Satan, but also our sins. 
Our sins have provoked the sentence of death upon ourselves. They condemn us to the pit. They enslave us to their power. And our temptations are insuperable as far as our own strength is concerned. If left to ourselves, our trials would only swallow us up. Oh, dear believer, you can no more overcome the least temptation of sin than Israel could cross the Red Sea. The Christian life is impossible apart from the supernatural help and power of Almighty God. A lost sinner can no more become a Christian by his inherent willpower or moral resolution than can Lazarus raise himself from the grave. Israel's vagabond band of slaves might as soon conquer Pharaoh's mighty array of chariots and battle-hardened warriors. And so it's vital for us to grasp that it's not merely difficult to be saved. It's impossible. It's impossible. And this impossibility applies to salvation, humanly speaking, in all its aspects, whether it be redemption, whether it be obtaining peace with God, whether it be overcoming sin's cruel temptation. It applies to both becoming a Christian and also living as a Christian. And it's not that we just get in to God's favor initially by grace, and then we maintain it by our own power. We are preserved by the same power and grace by which we were admitted into this grace to begin with. And that's why Paul says in Romans 5, 1 and 2, that we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. It's grace at the beginning, and our present ongoing standing is also by grace. And so we are left to depend wholly upon the achievement of another. No less so than Israel. And thanks be to God that he's not left us in a place of despair. Because what's obviously impossible with men is possible with God. His ordinary way of working in salvation is to make us aware of our utter inability so that his divine power and omnipotent grace may shine against the black backdrop of our inability and hopelessness and despair. That's why so often when the Lord begins to work in a soul as he is going to effectually draw them and summon them to Jesus Christ, what does he ordinarily do? Reveal our guilt to our conscience. Make us feel crushed under the burden of sin. Remember in Pilgrim's Progress, as uh, Bunyan's pilgrim, Christian, he was reading the book in his hand, and as he read the book in his hand, he became aware of this burden on his back. He wasn't aware of the burden until he read the book in his hand. But reading the book caused the burden. The revelation of God through his law and gospel initially and his ordinary way of working in grace to draw sinners to Christ, ordinarily he increases and augments that burden of sin so that we feel its weight. So that we realize we are like the children of Israel in Egypt. They felt the weight and burden of the Egyptians. That was bricks without straw. 
That was 400 years of the sweat of their brow of bitter and dire slavery. And that's what sin is like. That's what sin is like. But you see, if the Lord would just immediately grant his people a sense of the forgiveness of sin and justification and assurance of the grace of the gospel and their personal salvation without making them to feel the burden and weight of sin first, then many would be prone to to think that they overcame sin by their own power. You see, the Lord strips us of ourselves. He strips us of all confidence in the flesh. He makes us realize that we cannot bear the burden of sin. We cannot cope with the guilt of sin. We are powerless to remove that from us. And Bunyan's pilgrim, that burden only came off when he looked upon the cross. And then it fell off and rolled down the hill into the empty tomb. And that's how it is. What we cannot do by our own strength, one look to that cross. One glimpse of faith, however weak, however pitiful that faith may be, one glimpse of true faith to the cross of the Savior suffices to remove the burden of sin and set us free from its slavery. Well, in the second place, we have in this text divine spectacularity. Verse 13a, Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will accomplish for you today. Israel's commanded to stand still. Now, That was the hardest thing to possibly do in that context, if you think about it. Out of all the things that they were commanded to do, they were commanded to do what was absolutely against what seemed to them to be common sense, which was to throw their arms up in the air and to run around in circles screaming. But the Lord tells them, stand still. Cease from panicking and fretting. They were to recognize that though they were helpless, they were not hopeless. They could be nothing but without strength. But God would show himself strong on their behalf. He would accomplish their salvation before their very eyes. And they would be bystanders to such a spectacle of divine display that they would be constrained to confess that it was all of God and none of themselves and all to his glory. And so when they get to the other side of the Red Sea, Moses breaks out in prophetic song and the exuberance of his soul. And what does he do in that song? The famous song of Moses. That is one of the songs, one of the unique songs of the Bible that is most absolutely saturated with the attributes of God. He's just declaring who God is. He can't contain it. His mouth and heart are just bursting forth in praise. This was all of God, all to his glory. Consider again, it was not by predicament that Israel found themselves in this predicament of a location. It was no coincidence. The Egyptians probably thought Israel was wandering around lost, confused, 
Why didn't they go immediately to the east? Why did they take this detour? They must be lost. They must have forgotten their way. And now they're trapped. But it was the Lord who brought them to this point. For by the, Lord, the word of the Lord, Israel was instructed to camp here at P. Hahiroth between Migdol and the sea. Verse 3 tells us that Pharaoh thought the children of Israel had entrapped themselves. They seemed like sitting ducks. But really, it was Pharaoh and his armies that were entrapped. Little did they know. They would fall into the snare into which they thought Israel had fallen. The Lord often works like that in salvation history. David says that in the Psalms, May my enemies fall into the pit which they dug. May they be trapped in the snare which they set, he says. All this was a divine setup. Like wild game caught in a snare, the Egyptians were lured into this trap. They took the bait. And as they took it, God would snap their necks by crushing them with the waves of his fury. By the destruction of the powers of Egypt, Israel would get the victory. The nation would be delivered, spectacularly delivered. Very clear principle at work here. Think about it. Is, uh, Egypt sought to do great evil, to unleash their worst, to destroy God's nation. They thought that that day they were about to slaughter a couple million Hebrew slaves. But God himself would overturn their evil intentions and use those evil intentions to accomplish his saving purpose. As he says in verse 4, then I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Who's doing the hardening here? Yes, the book of Exodus says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, but it also says that the Lord hardened his heart. And it actually emphasizes the Lord's agency overall in hardening Pharaoh's heart. And so Pharaoh will pursue them. And he says, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army. Now, ju just a word of commentary there. Pharaoh thought he was a god. Pharaoh thought he was a kind of deity incarnate. There are different deities that the ancient Egyptians worshipped, but one of the most common ones was the deity known as Ra, the god of the sun. Pharaoh thought that he was the incarnate expression of Ra, the sun god. And he thought that he himself, along with the false deities of Egypt, were more powerful than this foreign god who goes by the name of Yahweh. After all, Egypt was the most powerful nation on earth, and it was their gods who enabled them to become so powerful. And so I think this is provoking the Lord to jealousy, to holy jealousy. And that's why he says, I will get honor over Pharaoh. I will show who's God, and they will know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I am the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And I made a covenant with Abraham, and I'm about to fulfill it 400 years later, just as I promised to him. And so, it's an act of judgment. The Lord handed Pharaoh over to the hardness of his own Heart. In the words of Romans 1, God gave him up. 
sovereignly orchestrated the whole scene. Pharaoh had evil intentions, but God ordained to bring about his judgment through these evil intentions in order to bring about the salvation of his people. This isn't the first time we see this in the Bible. Remember what Joseph said to his brothers after the death of Jacob. But as for you, Genesis 50, 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. New King James gets that verse precisely right. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Same Hebrew word used in both cases, speaking of purposeful intention behind what was done. God meant good through the instrumentality of the evil intentions and works of the brothers of Joseph. Joseph's brothers hated him with murderous intentions. They betrayed him. They sold him into Egypt. But this contriving to undo him led to their not being undone. Their murderous intentions led to, ultimately, the deliverance of the ancient world from the death throes of severe famine, including the family of Israel as God's elect nation. And so God, without being the author of sin, sovereignly employed their destructive intentions in order to bring salvation from the destruction of the famine. God used intentions for death to undo death. God subjected human rebellion to his sovereign purpose to bring about redemption, to save Israel. And the purpose was clear, for at the end of it all, no one could deny that it was the hand of God. That's what Joseph's brothers learned at the end of the whole ordeal. This was God. Tremendous irony. Tremendous providence. This was the hand of God. When Exodus 14, it looked as if the Egyptians had won the day. The victory was all but certain. They thought they had conquered. But the Lord turned it all on its head at the last moment. The sovereign king of heaven and earth allowed sin to run its course so that sin and death, as typified in the evil Egyptian powers, would lead themselves into a mighty destruction wrought by the arm of the Lord. This would gain notoriety and fame for the name of Yahweh to the ends of the earth. And that news spread quickly after it was done. But notice the sinful intentions of Pharaoh, of Pharaoh's armies, led to their own suicide, as it were. God did this to display his glory to display his wisdom, to display his power, to display his absolute sovereignty. So again, verse 4 says that he would do this, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. To exhibit a spectacular display of his awesome wisdom and might and his sovereign supremacy over the most powerful opposing forces of the world. This glory shines all the brighter because Israel was helpless in the face of it. They even despaired. And looking at the reaction, you can't even say, well, it was because of the great faith of Israel that they were led through. This was God. 
God's might is gloriously displayed when all human resources are dismayed. In Israel's darkest, bleakest hour, God accomplished such a sovereign salvation that it became Israel's brightest, happiest day. This was the day that the umbilical cord from Egypt was cut. And now they had gone independent as their own nation to be ruled over by Yahweh himself as their king. It's no wonder that the Exodus event is culminating in the crossing of the Red Sea. The destruction of Pharaoh's armies therefore becomes a paradigm of salvation throughout the rest of the Bible. This is analogous to what God has accomplished in our salvation as well. How does the Apostle Paul put it in that much known and much loved text, Romans 5, 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. And those words without strength don't mean that we had a little strength. They mean completely devoid of strength, completely divested of any personal capability. We could not effectuate our own salvation. We could not contribute anything to it. This is not relative weakness, but absolute impotency. We had nothing else to do but to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And just as God had allured Pharaoh, God allured the serpent, the ancient serpent into this scene of Calvary's cross so that the serpent would rush headlong into his own suicide, as it were. So that in striking the heel of the God-man, the serpent's head would be crushed. God sovereignly used the murderous intentions of wicked men, of an apostate Israel, of Roman soldiers, to orchestrate the scene through which he would display his glory by bringing about a spectacular salvation in comparison to which the salvation from Egypt paled. Paled in comparison. Through death, Christ destroyed death. And so Satan rushed into his own destruction at the cross. So no more bondage now. The chains of slavery to sin and death and the devil, they've been snapped by the almighty arm of the Lord. The world's darkest hour, when thick darkness covered the scene, and the hour of the power of darkness had come at Calvary's cross, became the spectacle of God's triumphant saving power, and it is, therefore, eternally the people of God's brightest, happiest day. And now we celebrate the cross. We wear crosses around our neck. We put crosses up on our walls. We celebrate the cross as a symbol of joy and salvation and of God's triumph. The cross of Calvary, God's glory on display in orchestrating salvation through the judgment of evil powers. And God's salvation is not weak or haphazard or partial but it is definitively final. There is a definitive finality 
to it. Look at verses 13b to 14. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, stand still, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall, literally in the Hebrew, keep silent. You will put your hand over your mouth in awe once you see the work of God. And so we all know the story. God opened the waters and led Israel through on dry ground. The Egyptians pursued, and God caused the waters to crush them into the depths. You've heard of that famous uh, little story that's often told of the uh, little boy that goes up to the liberal biblical scholar and says, I just read in, in the book of Exodus that God drowned the whole Egyptian army in, in the Red Sea. And the liberal scholar says, yeah, but, you know, we, we know better than that. The, the water was only a foot or two deep. And then the boy exclaimed, well, wow, th this is even greater than I thought. God is so mighty that he drowned the entire Egyptian army in one or two feet of water. <laughs> It wasn't one or two feet. This was a sea, and the Bible says the water stood up like a heap, like straight-up walls, and Israel went through on dry ground. And so when those waters came crushing down, that's obviously a picture of God's wrath. Those dastardly Egyptians would never be seen again. Israel would never be enslaved again to the corrupt powers of Egypt. They had the promise of permanent deliverance from the Egyptians. They would sing the song of Jubilee after 400 years of submitting their necks to the foreign yoke of the oppressor. So what comfort, what consolation, what confirmation was communicated by those words, you shall see them again no more forever. Definitive finality to this salvation. And this salvation is so definitively final because God had wrought it. God had appended his promise and his covenant to this salvation. God would make sure that his saving purpose was accomplished such that it could not be thwarted or overturned or reversed. The text actually picks up the motif of God as the warrior king of Israel. The Lord will fight for you, he says. The Lord will fight for you. He is the warrior. The text links the efficaciousness of the salvation to be accomplished with the ability of God to fight. And his ability wields all the might of his omnipotence. And so this spectacularly a sovereign display of salvation that's accomplished with definitive finality is putting on display the fact that when God saves his people, he brings to bear on that salvation all the resources of his own infinite power. And if God is fighting the battle, who can withstand him? Is Pharaoh mightier than God? Psalm 2 says that though all the nations gather together, all their power to resist him, 
that he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The mightiest forces on earth indeed, all the nations combined, Isaiah 40 and verse 15 says, are but a drop in a bucket and dust on the scales. This holds out great hope of assurance to the people of God. In the words of Paul, Romans 8.31, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And so, what is it that disturbs your peace of conscience, dear believer? What trial is there that is too hard for the Lord to bring you through? What sin is too strong for the arm of the Lord? Do you feel weak and helpless before the onslaughts of your hellish enemies? Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Look to the cross. Cling to the precious cross. Trust in that blood. He will lead you safely through the turmoil of this world into the glory of of the heavenly Canaan. But someone might say, but my conscience troubles me. My sins are ever before me. They would swallow me up. Well, hear what the Lord said to Israel. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. Just as he drowned Egypt's horse and rider into the depths of the sea, he has promised to all who cling to Christ that he has cast their sins into the depths of the sea. That's Exodus language in Malachi 7.19. As he said in Hebrews 8.12, their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. You don't have to torment yourself with your remorses with the memories of your past sins. If they're under the blood, they are washed away. They are gone. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. So we should not doubt, brethren, never doubt the power and the effectiveness of the de facto finality of God's salvation. And I know that when we read these stories, it's, it's, it's easy to condemn the ancient Israelites. Yet, I think we are oftentimes more like them than we would like to admit. How often are we tempted to have more faith in the might of Pharaoh than the might of God? This was often a temptation for Israel throughout their history. 2 Kings 18, 24, Psalm 20 and verse 7, Isaiah 31 and verse 3 and 36 and verse 9 and many other texts indicate that Israel continued to fear Pharaoh and his chariots and to trust in them. And it was the temptation of those gathered on the Red Sea as they cried out in panic. Our true enemies... Sin, Satan, death, temptation, this fallen world system, they seem so real and tangible to us. Pharaoh's armies seem more real and tangible to them in that moment, to the Israelites in that moment, than did the promises of God. Our sins seem so much more real to us when they intersect with our experience and we are in the midst of a temptation or some prevailing sin, some besetting sin. It's so easy to 
size up our sins and our enemies due to their palpable intersection with our daily experience. We can easily see that their power and influence are much mightier than us. Formidable foes indeed. How incessantly they tempt us to despair. How do we often despair? We despair when we have more faith in the power of sin's guilt than we do in the power of God's grace to cleanse us from it. We despair whenever we view temptations as stronger than the power of the gospel's promises to provide a way of escape from them. We despair when we perceive our trials as greater than our God's good and compassionate purpose for us in them and to deliver us from them. Brethren, our God is the God who parted the waters of the Red Sea and made them stand up like a heap. Our God is the one who crushed the mightiest nation on the earth like a flea. Our God is the one who laughs in the face of the impossible. Can he not then remit your guilt, and not just some of it, but all of it? Can he not empower you to trample the serpents and scorpions of your soul's enemies? Can he not drown your seas and the sea of his your sins rather in the sea of his forgetfulness? Oh, let us guard ourselves from believing more in the power of sinner Satan than the power of the God who has covenanted to save those who are so powerless that they are without strength. God's salvation is definitively final. If we are in Christ, we will see our former bondage no more. No more. It's dead, gone, buried. Now, of course, someone might say, well, this all sounds good, but how do I appropriate it? How exactly do I apply this to my own life? Well, we appropriate the victory that God has accomplished by faith. Simple, childlike faith. Hebrews 11 is a wonderful example of that. It says, by faith, by faith, by faith. Verse 29 of Hebrews 11 actually makes this surprising statement. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. Now, most did not believe, but some obviously did. Now, the Exodus text mentions nothing specifically of faith other than the command to have faith. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Behold the work of God. Trust in what God's about to do, in other words. But other than that, it doesn't mention faith. But the author to the Hebrews explains the event, and he says that they passed through the Red Sea by faith. And so by faith, they won the victory. For this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. 1 John 5, 4. Particularly, we are to hold our peace, stand still, see the salvation of God, and we should therefore exercise faith along the following three lines. In the first place, to have faith in that our inability does not hinder the ability and grace of God. Many, unfortunately, downplay the human predicament in order to uphold the feasibility of salvation. They downplay the human predicament to uphold the viability and feasibility of salvation. 
And what I mean is that in order to maintain the hope of salvation, many diminish the gravity of sin and its consequences. They downplay the depravity of man. They want to attribute to man some kind of inherent ability to contribute something to his own salvation. That gives them some kind of hope. Salvation becomes more plausible because sin does not completely devastate the situation. There thus remains a ray of hope and that some inherent resource in man may be employed in service of our salvation. And that's the case with all semi-Pelagian theology and all works-based systems of salvation. But that's the wrong way to approach the whole matter. Notice that Moses did not attempt to convince Israel that Pharaoh and his armies weren't so big and bad. I don't see that anywhere in the text. Don't, don't worry. Uh, it's not as bad as you think it is. Uh, there's, there's some ability in you guys to, to overcome these, <laughs> these chariots. The Lord didn't diminish their plight or their predicament. They were helpless, but they were to trust him in the midst of their inability. Our sin is greater than we can fathom, and it is infinitely more grievous in the sight of God than our minds can even begin to comprehend. But this is no more an insurmountable obstacle to our salvation that, again, was Egyptian's army to the purpose of God for Israel. And so, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so, though we despair of our inability we should let it drive us to have faith in God's limitless ability. In the second place, we should have faith in the glorious display of God's sovereign salvation. Have faith in the glorious display of God's sovereign salvation. As the text exhorts the people saying, stand still and see the salvation of God, this is as much an exhortation for us as it was for them. A marvelous array of divine attributes was displayed before their very eyes and the parting of the waters and drowning of the Egyptians. The ordinary, or, or the ordination rather, an orchestration of the whole event marvelously exhibited the attributes of God. It exhibited the wisdom of God. The judgment of the wicked showed forth the justice of God. Such easy manipulation and handling of the waters which often represent, by the way, indomitable chaos for the Hebrew people, events the lordship of God. The whole event, as the fulfillment of the promise to the patriarchs, manifested the faithfulness of God, the bestowal of a salvation on the ungrateful and unworthy Israelites showed the grace of God. The mighty accomplishment of this salvation showed the power of God. The whole event demonstrates his absolute sovereignty. That is, Jonah 2.9 put it, the salvation is of the Lord. And we could go on and on. God's glorious display of his attributes is a mighty disclosure of his glory. Because to unveil himself is to expose his glory. And this display of glory was placed in the service of this people's salvation. His wisdom and justice and lordship and faithfulness and grace and power and salvation. This glorious unveiling of the curtain to display just how great and awesome God is in this one historical event. 
God has displayed his glory even fuller and further in the salvation accomplished in his Son. Because he, in the fullness of his glorious grace, has covenanted and committed to bring us to glory if we trust in Christ. And his wisdom cannot be confounded. His justice cannot be corrupted. His grace cannot be diluted. His power cannot be debilitated. And his sovereignty cannot be thwarted. And all that was established with utter finality at the cross of Christ. And so if you have taken refuge in Christ... All of these glorious attributes are immutably marshaled in the service of your salvation, of your eternal well-being, and your boundless eternal joy. And finally, in the third place, we are to have faith in the definitive accomplishment of God the Son. As Israel was safely on the other side of the Red Sea, they could look back over the waters that had collapsed on their former taskmasters. And you know what they saw as they looked back over those waters? Just waters. Just waters. No Egyptians. They could now say, it is done. It is all over. We have been set free. The whole ordeal of the Exodus has ended. Slavery to Egypt, thing of the past. Exodus accomplished. They could now rest assured and secure that their Egyptian enemies had been buried forever. Now as they stood on the shore of the other side, they could now utter their wholehearted amen to what Moses had told them. You shall hold your peace. Stand still and see the salvation of God. A solemn sense of awe must have weighed heavy on their minds. Can you imagine? The previous panic had given way to a profound peace. From panic to peace. This can all be applied to our case as well, dear friends. The Son of God hung bleeding upon that cross, and prior to breathing his last, he proclaimed, It is finished. The Lord Jesus Christ has ushered his people into this new final climactic exodus. He parted the waters of death for us by his own death. And now we can cross the river of death singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. Buried in Christ's death. We can look back now at this sea that threatens our destruction, that sea of death. And we can see that in it are buried through Christ's death, our sins, our woes, our enemies. And so let's confide in the crucified one, trust in his finished work, and as we march forward through this world's wilderness toward our heavenly Canaan, we can be sure that the God who has been so faithful to redeem us will most certainly bring every single one of us who've trusted in the blood all the way home, safely and soundly. Let's pray. Oh God, our hearts are filled with such profound gratitude, Lord, that you've given us such a spectacular, sovereign, definitively final salvation. And oh Lord, we do pray that you may open our eyes, that we may catch a greater glimpse of the glory of all your attributes that have been marshaled in our service. Help us to trust you. Help us to cling to you. Help us to walk with you. Help us to submit to your word. Help us, Father, to have our hearts strengthened and encouraged as we press on 
in the days ahead. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.